Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last Sunday we started a series on uh, the book of Matthew, and uh, some of you are disappointed to find out we won't be going through all 28 chapters, and others of you are relieved. Uh, But we will spend about eight weeks in the book of Matthew, um, and uh, so I'll be kind of jumping around, finding those parts of Matthew that uh, I think are good for us to spend some time in and look at. And so last week, we started with just verse 1 of chapter 1. And uh, that's why some of you are glad we're not spending uh, the whole time in 28 chapters, because if we only just went one verse at a time, you guys would probably look for another pastor. Um, uh, But anyways, there's this uh, book that I'm reading. It was actually written by a pastor. He preached through the book of Matthew, and I think he did it in 98 sermons. Um, I think they were in the book for about three years or so. Um, they took summers off and they kind of did some other things at times, but, um, that's not my plan. I'm just going to do 90 less than that. Um, and we won't do the whole book. So today we're going to look at Matthew chapter three, the entire chapter. So if you have your Bible, it'd be, uh, advantageous for you to open it to Matthew three. If you're curious, we typically have the NIV up on the screen the New International Version. Why do we have that one? Because uh, that's the one I grew up with. Um, is it the best? Uh, sometimes. The, the best way to study your Bible, if you're really studying it, is to have more than one translation available to you because they're translations. And there's no perfect translation that exists. Um, so we have the NIV in front of us, but there's times I reference other versions because uh, they translate it better. Um, but anyways, uh, we have the NIV on the screen, and I think that's what's in the pews too. So Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at a very uh, interesting episode in Christ's life. Uh, we're looking at a contentious issue in the life of the church, and the issue is baptism. I grew up uh, for the first uh, 12 years or so of my life in a church that was called the Assemblies of God. And the Assemblies of God is the church that I was baptized in. And the Assemblies of God had some distinct doctrines uh, that other uh, denominations do not hold to. But for the most part, the Assemblies of God agree with most other denominations on, on some of the core essentials of the faith. Uh, but they add a couple things that are important to them and kind of what you might be able to describe as denominational distinctives, things that would make you distinctively an Assembly of God church. At that church, I was baptized. Uh, I was six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in there. I'd have to ask my mom and find out for sure. Uh, I was baptized when I came to faith in Jesus Christ and the church had an opening for me to get baptized because they had a baptistry much like our church. And FYI, we're doing a baptism next Sunday. Uh, We're going to baptize Owen Lewis who has come to Christ. Uh, He's a young little guy. He came to Christ last 
uh, a year ago, summertime actually. And so uh, we're going to baptize him. He is being faithful and following Jesus' commandment to be baptized when you come to faith in him. And I'd encourage anybody who has not been baptized uh, that this is an opportunity for you. We'll have water. It'll be warm. Uh, and you could be baptized. Just talk to me following the service um, today or next week. You could talk to me following the service next week and uh, just bring a swimsuit. Um, but baptism has been historically one of these things that is why there's so many denominations in the world, uh, especially here in the States. It's said that there's about 10,000 different denominations of Christians of different Protestant Christians in the U.S. And my, you know, my joke is whenever you have a new denomination, it's because somebody got mad and they wanted to start a new church that was faithful and right and the only way to do it, and so they went out and did their own thing. And one of the issues that historically Protestants have argued about is baptism. It started very early on. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli... They all had different views to a degree of baptism and what was happening at baptism, what was being accomplished at baptism, who should have baptism, uh, why you should be baptized. They already started fussing and fighting 1,500 years ago. Prior to that, the Catholic Church um, had a particular understanding of baptism, uh, but those ideas of baptism, uh, they evolved over time. And they started to differ somewhat from the biblical teaching. And so today, there's lots of different understandings of baptism. My goal today is not to make anybody upset, not to ruffle any feathers. My goal today is to try to bring some clarity from the scriptures on this issue of baptism. Now, we're not going to spend just our whole time at that because I've, what I've done is instead of dividing this chapter into two because I'm only doing eight sermons. I'm doing the whole chapter today. Usually, if you read any commentaries on this chapter, uh, they, they, they parse it out from verse 1 to 12 is one section, and then 13 through 17 is a second section. We're going to look at it all. And the reason is I think it's important to. So let's dive in, uh, knowing that this is about our baptism But it's also about Christ's baptism. And that may strike you as a little weird that Jesus would be baptized. Let's dive in. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Wouldn't you love it? That's a one-sentence sermon. Um, We'll see later, though, that he does add a little bit to this. This is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So Matthew is linking John the Baptist to a prophecy in Isaiah, the prophet. This is Matthew giving us this narrative uh, viewpoint. He's saying John came and he is fulfilling scripture in Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 50. And he's fulfilling this role of being the forerunner to the Messiah. So Matthew's giving us that insight of what's going on here. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. He's a bit eccentric, uh, a bit strange. He was cut from the same cloth as the prophets of the Old Testament, 
who did really wacky, crazy things sometimes. Uh, he would probably be a lot of fun to have at a dinner party uh, if he didn't just offend everybody there. His food was locusts and wild honey. He didn't go shopping at the store, apparently. He foraged for his food out in the desert. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea. So Jerusalem's the city, Judea's kind of the state or the county that you can think of around Jerusalem and the whole region of the Jordan, the Jordan River region. So you can kind of think of that as like the Platte Valley River region, right? Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now it's interesting. All these people are coming out to John to see this spectacle, this camel hair wearing, belt toting, locust honey eating guy who's saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, part of this is because they didn't have the Winter Olympics on at home. And there wasn't always a lot of stuff to do back then for entertainment. And so sometimes a prophet was some, somewhat entertaining. People would go out and they'd want to see the spectacle. There was somebody who'd been out and already seen him and they come back into town and they're like, you got to go hear this guy. He's really fascinating. Plus, I don't know when he last showered. It's kind of a spectacle. It's really kind of interesting. Um, you need to go out and see this guy. And so people would come in droves. Matthew's telling us that people came from all over the place to hear John the Baptist speak. Now it's interesting, this episode of Jesus' baptism and John the Baptist is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And this is the first story that's recorded in all four. His, Jesus' birth isn't recorded in all four. This issue right here, Baptism is recorded in all four Gospels. It's important. It's important to know who John is. It's important to know what baptism is. It's important to know that Jesus himself was baptized. They were baptized. Why? Because they were confessing their sins. You know, that's not a very popular notion in today's culture nowadays. The idea of confessing one's sins. Sin is far from a popular notion. We, we tend to think more in mistakes or I messed up. Uh, it's rare that you hear somebody say, I have sinned. I sinned against you. You'll often hear more euphemisms, won't you, for that? I messed up. I made a mistake. I can't believe I did that. I blew it. But sin. Sin's the core issue here. And even though sin is not very popular the idea of repentance is even less repenting of something confessing something none of us like this because it calls for humility on our part humility we were watching a movie yesterday the blind side perhaps you've seen it it's about michael orr who uh, became a left tackle in the nfl and uh, he, he had this family that kind of took him in and uh, um, the husband and the wife are arguing at one point a little bit about uh, whether they should really go all in and become his legal guardians. And the husband actually gets his wife to say, yeah, you're right. And the husband says, how did those words taste coming out of your mouth? 
And she says, like vinegar. (laughs) You know, it's an example of how difficult it is to admit we're wrong and somebody else is right. And confession is the action of admitting that we are wrong and God is right. And a lot of times, those words can feel like vinegar in our mouths. We resist it. We do not want to confess until we're confronted. A lot of us work that way, don't we? We don't confess our sin. We don't confess we're wrong with our spouse or our kids or our employer or anything until we're confronted. We're found out. We're called on the carpet. And even some of us then, we we don't even do it then. I mean, look at the next part of the scriptures. But when he saw, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, (laughs) you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Can you just hear the sarcasm in this guy? I feel so good that I have the gift of sarcasm because I'm in good company. John the Baptist had sarcasm. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Have a nice day. That's John's sermon right there. Brood of vipers, it's kind of interesting. It really, the Greek there means offspring of snakes. You're an offspring of vipers. You might even think that he's hearkening back. He would know his Bible. Maybe he's hearkening back to Genesis and the snake. And you think you're an offspring of Abraham. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. You're really offspring of the snake, Genesis 3. Wow. That's some fighting words. Pharisees, Sadducees, we encounter these people all the time in the scriptures. And actually, they're two different groups. They get lumped together oftentimes by the gospel writers. But we need to keep them separate because they didn't like each other. Kind of like, oh, I don't know. There's probably a modern day example I could come up with. Republicans and Democrats, maybe. These groups of people, Pharisees and Sadducees, in order for them to agree on something, they would have to have a common enemy. Like, I don't know, Iran, right? The only way that you could get the Pharisees and Sadducees to agree on anything would have been a common enemy. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were politically conservative, but theologically liberal. So politically conservative, meaning that they felt like Rome was the big problem and the Romans needed to be kicked out and Jerusalem needed to be ruled and reigned by the Israelites, by the rightful king, by the Messiah. They were theologically liberal in that they they allowed for more types of uh, divorces, say, than the Sadducees. They were theologically liberal in that if the ideas weren't found in the first five books of the Bible, which the Sadducees believed it had to be found in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, that there was room, there was gray area. And so the Pharisees, from our perspective, would have been far more reasonable people theologically. 
Sadducees, for instance, didn't believe in angels because the angels don't occur in, in the first five books of the Bible. There is no discussion of angels in the first five books of the Bible. So the Sadducees say, see, there is no angels. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead because first five books of the Bible have no resurrection of the dead. They were very theologically conservative. They would say, if it's not in the first five books, then you can't believe it. That's it, okay? Very narrow-minded theologically. But politically, the Sadducees were very liberal. The Sadducees had made friends with the Romans. The Sadducees didn't see the political situation the same way that the Pharisees saw it. And these two groups would argue, fuss, and fight all the time. They would squabble. In fact, you've heard probably of the Sanhedrin, right? The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court in Jerusalem. It was Israel's Supreme Court. And guess who made up the Sanhedrin? Some Pharisees and some Sadducees. Kind of sounds like another Supreme Court I've heard of. And these two groups would argue, fuss, and fight all the time. And when they agreed, it's because they had a common enemy. John here and the gospel writers regularly lump these two together. Why? Because these have a common enemy in who? in the person of Jesus Christ. They have a common enemy. Here we begin to see the common enemy, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus Christ. And he starts out with such nice, warm, fuzzy words. He knows how to win friends and influence people. You offspring of snakes. Who warned you to flee? Sarcasm. You know, we got to keep this in mind. You might think, whoa, this guy's really kind of mean. Jesus said this of John the Baptist, Matthew eleven eleven. He said, John, there has never been a greater person ever than John the Baptist. Jesus himself said that about John. There has been never a greater man than John the Baptist. Guys, if you're aspiring to be the greatest guy, it's already been done. That, that's settled. John the Baptist was the greatest after Jesus And here, this great man has difficult, hard, hurtful things to say. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees are Israelites. They're children of Abraham. And they practice a sin that many of us in the church practice. The sin of presumption. They presume that since we are the children of Abraham, we will be saved. And in the church today, this is the biggest sin amongst Protestants, I believe. The sin of presumption. I prayed a prayer when I was five years old at Bible camp. And I don't have to do anything else. It's all God. It's all his grace. It's all his mercy. I can live like hell the rest of my life and get into heaven. Because I said one prayer when I was five. Because I was baptized as an infant Because I did the, I mean, you can fill in the blank time and time and time and time again with Protestant affirmation that I'm good because of this. What does John say is the evidence that you're good? That you're in? That you're right with God? He says it's fruit. But produce fruit Keeping 
with repentance. You see, the sinner's prayer, and many of you know what that is. Uh, some of you may not. But the sinner's prayer is when you, you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit of your sin, of your evil, of the bad, of the ugh in you. <laughs> and for some of us, it happened when we were little. And for some of us, it happens when we're older. And for some of you, it hasn't happened yet. But when this comes upon us, the Holy Spirit is acting in our lives and he is causing us to feel remorse and pain and sorrow for our sins. Then we, we say a prayer, typically. We ask Jesus Christ. We confess our sins. First of all, we say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. How I've lived my life is messed up. I have been selfish. I have been self-centered. I thought it was all about me, but it's not. And I've done things that have been evil and wicked and hurtful and manipulative and on and on and on. And each of us has to fill in the blank at that point. We have to confess of our sins. And then we say something along the lines of, forgive me of my sins. I repent of my sins. I turn away from my sins. And the interesting thing with the sinner's prayer is we oftentimes think, and it can be taught, that it's a one-time deal and you're good to go. Well, let me tell you something. I pray the sinner prayer pretty regularly. <laughs> it's something that we have to do ongoing in our lives. We have to live a sin-confessing life. We have to live a repentant life. What was the difference between King Saul and King David? Was it the amount of sin they had done? <laughs> I mean, if that's the difference between them, then Saul wins. Because Saul did far less sinning than David. David did a couple of big ones. Like he would not be able to be your pastor. If you did a background check on him, you'd probably be thinking, no, we can't have that guy. I mean, he, it depends on how you read the text, but I would say that he sexually assaulted a woman. He sexually assaulted Bathsheba. And then to cover it up because she became pregnant, he had her husband murdered. Those are huge. I mean, there's very few people that have done those two things. And King David did them. I mean, you know, within a few months' time. Saul, what did he do? He just disobeyed God. He didn't didn't kill everybody that he was told to kill by God. Oh, so he he was merciful? Well, if you want to think of it that way, but he disobeyed God. Yeah, I mean, everybody's going to disobey God. What's the big deal? I mean, murdering, sexually assault, sexual assault of somebody, those are horrific, and they are. But David, it says in the scriptures, was a man after God's own heart. How could the scriptures say that about a murderer and a predator? Because he was repentant. He lived a life of confession. He lived a life of repentance. If you don't believe me, then grab Psalm 51, which is a psalm, a key psalm during the season of Lent, and read it, pray it. David was a man of prayer and confession and repentance. John says, keep fruit with repentance. He goes on and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. (laughs) Now it's interesting, right here is where you start to see those Protestant denominations all start getting all sideways with each other. Because we have John say, I baptize you with water for repentance. You have other parts of the scriptures that seem to teach that it is through baptism that we receive forgiveness, that we receive the cleansing of our sins, the washing away of our sins. And this is where you get different denominations and, and also the Catholic doctrine that you are washed of your sin through baptism, that the means by which, the mode by which your sins are washed away is baptism. And there is some language in the scriptures that you can make that case for. But there's also, and I'd say there's more evidence that that is not what happens at baptism. In fact, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul's addressing this a little bit, and I think it's in the book of 1 Corinthians, and he says, God has sent me to declare, to preach the gospel of repentance, not to baptize you. In Paul's mind, they are two distinct different things. Our repentance, our confession of our sins, our being washed away of our sin, and then our physical baptism. I think you see a bit of the seed of this idea here in this text from Matthew, where John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In John's mind, there's two kind of different baptisms. Now, hear me well. John lives at a weird time. He's living in between the end of the book of Malachi and the beginning of God's new stuff with Jesus. And John's baptism is something that can't be done today. John's baptism is something that was just kind of for that in-between time. That time before Jesus died on the cross and then he rose from the dead and then he told his disciples, go and baptize people in my name. Here we find John baptizing for repentance. But it's not the same baptism as what Christ had asked us to do. The mode's the same, but what it's accomplishing, right, is totally different. He says himself, that one is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's where the denomination I grew up in, the Assemblies of God, that's where they kind of get this whole idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace. That you're saved, then you're baptized by water, and then at a different time, God baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And I want to argue that that's not a good way to see it. And many people in the Assemblies of God don't even see it that way anymore. There's time and time again in the New Testament we're told when we confess our sins, when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at that moment. That's our baptism by the Holy Spirit. And Paul, I think, when he says, I came to preach for the forgiveness of sins, the gospel of repentance, I think he's saying, I came so that you could be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That inward thing that happens when you're converted, that inward thing that happens when you're saved, that inward thing that happens when Jesus, his language was when you're born again. 
when your heart is transformed. But the early church always saw baptism and repentance, baptism and repentance as, as the instantaneous thing. Do you remember the book of Acts? It says 3,000 were added to, that, to their number that day. They baptized those folks. I mean, that's just what you did. And today, nowadays, we've kind of distanced the two experiences of confession and repentance and baptism. And some of that is, I think, a gatekeeping thing that churches came up with. Oh, we got to make sure they get it before we dunk them. We got to make sure that this is right before we do this. Got to make sure that they know what they're talking about, what they're experiencing, what they're getting into. I mean, imagine them doing that after Peter's 20-minute sermon with 3,000 of them on that first day. Oh, we got to make sure, got to make sure. I think what they were willing to do was, let's trust God in this. God knows. God knows the heart. God knows what's going on. And if they are responding in obedience, that they want to be baptized, then who are we to stay in their way? Let's do this. And so they did. Now, it's interesting at this point, John is introducing Jesus to us, this one who is greater. And right on the heels of this, at least how Matthew tells it, it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't the church teach that Jesus is without sin? Doesn't the church teach that, that Jesus never sinned? And didn't John say that his baptism was a baptism of repentance? Why is Jesus showing up to be baptized by John? In fact, John has that same issue. It says, but John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Why is John saying that? I'm the sinner here. You're the Lord. You're the Messiah. You are Jesus. I should be the one baptized by you. What does Jesus do? Oh, yeah, you're right. I was just kidding. No. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to what? Fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. I mean, it's somewhat of a cryptic answer. It's kind of a weird answer. There's big words in there like righteousness, like uh, what is righteousness? What is going on? Well, Jesus doesn't say, I'm here to be baptized because I'm confessing my sins. That's not what Jesus says. And that's important to note. Jesus says, I'm here to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Okay. What does that mean? The scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life. That Jesus Christ did everything that was necessary and required by God to be declared righteous. And for him, it wasn't through faith. It was through works. You understand that? He worked it out, the faith. Now, it wasn't necessarily hard work because he was God in the flesh. Yet, the scriptures, and in the next story is, he's tempted by the devil, the very next chapter that we'll see. And my guess is these were real temptations. My guess is these were things that he had to resist with the help of the Holy Spirit. Or else, you can't really say he's fully human, right? 
You can't really say he's fully human if it's like, ah, this isn't really that hard. I mean, if it was really easy for him to resist, to go through the pain of the cross, then it's more like a show for our sake. But these are things that really happen. And Jesus, it says in Hebrews, was tempted every way that is common to humanity to be tempted. And I would argue he was tempted in ways that none of us could even imagine to be tempted. Like, for instance, remember that heckling he received on the cross? This is a way you and I would never be tempted. The heckler said, he saved others. Why don't you just save yourself? See, for you and I, pinned against a cross, that's not a temptation because there's not much we can do at that point. But Jesus, Son of God in the flesh, (laughs) excuse me, who do you think you are? (laughs) Bolts of lightning come down from heaven, angels, you know. I mean, he even says this himself. He says to Pilate before he is condemned to death, he says, I could call down legions of angels to fight for me. You want to be tempted? You want to be tempted? I mean, my goodness, how often was that temptation experienced by Christ? As they're pulling his beard out, as they're beating his face, as they're taking the, 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 the crown of thorns and beating it on his head. I mean, wouldn't you just, all of you, your, your very core of your being as a human say, enough, stop it. And if you had the power, wouldn't you do something? I mean, the temptations that Christ faced that we will never, ever even understand. Jesus says, I've come to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Why is Jesus being baptized? Here's the, what I think. Now, I've read a whole bunch of this, and there's all sorts of different answers, and here's why I think he did it. To obey the Father. I think that's why Jesus was I think that's why he was baptized, to obey the will of the Father. You see, the Father's will for all of us, all humanity, is that we would confess our sins and be baptized. It's part of being made righteous with him. And I think the same applied for Jesus. In order to be viewed righteous by God, he had to fulfill the law. But he also had to do all that God commands. And one of the things that God commands is is baptism it's along the lines of he commands everybody to love one another he commands us to bear one another burdens he commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us he commands he commands he commands he commands all over the place there's all these commands and jesus to be considered fully righteous had to fulfill all the commands i think it's as simple as that I think Craig Blomberg is right in his commentary where he says this was so that Jesus would fulfill God's commands. Now, it's not as exciting and interesting as what the other scholars think, but I think that's the right one. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. (laughs) 
He gets the stamp of approval. He gets, he gets, he gets all three people in the Trinity involved. Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, the dove, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, the voice, the disembodied voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. I think another thing that's going on here that you can see is this is Jesus' coronation as king. I mean, he just got it from the two most important beings in the universe, God the Father and the Holy Spirit besides himself. And they say, this is my son. And it's like the spirit, the dove comes down on him like a crown. And at that moment, you are seeing King Jesus. Remember how John's sermon began? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then at the end of this chapter, the heavens open and the king is crowned. And he's here. You see, we are still called to baptism. We're still called to confession of sins. And I would encourage, I pray each of you would heed that command of God, that you would confess your sins, that you would repent of your sin. <coughs> And that you would be baptized. And then beyond that, no, it's not the right way of putting it. And as a result of that, you would produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. There's probably others. But those are some that Paul lists for us in Galatians 5. Keep fruit, produce fruit with keeping with repentance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided this means of repentance and salvation for us through Christ. Thank you that he even humbled himself to the point of entering in to the world as a human. It's amazing to contemplate. And more than that, he went through this life listening to your voice, listening to your instructions, doing all that you commanded him to do. Lord, help us to open our ears to you, to listen for your voice, to be people who do all that you command of us. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins. If you haven't been baptized, be baptized. If you have been baptized, remember your baptism and produce fruit. Amen.